well, we need OSI agents to do counterintelligence support for these guys. We don't have anyone at Camp Uka. Yes, you're in Kuwait, but you're not. We need you on the ground. And they said, okay, grant them. I said, okay. So uh, me and another agent who was a captain at the time, we hopped in and we head up to Kambuka. We literally had a box of paper, a tough book laptop, mm-hmm. and that was it. Really? And we walked yeah. in with our bags and we said, hey, we're here. Uh, Air Force called us to be here. And of course, the Army looked at us like, no one told me you were coming. <laughs> So <laughs> Damn Air Force guys! Yes. Really coming. We don't got five star hotels in Cambuco, okay? So relax. I said, I yeah, uh, I like the two room suite, please. Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, so we show up. They had no idea we were coming. No idea we were supposed to be there. And uh, I just lucked out because with uh, Air Force eight, uh, OSI agents, you're allowed to carry armed. As you wear mm-hmm. in an, in a mm-hmm. deployed environment, yeah, yeah. you can't walk around hot. Mm-hmm. Weapons hot. Yeah, condition one, right? Yeah. Yeah, we can. Yeah, we're allowed to because of our status as investigators slash counterintelligence officers. And because of that, you can only be billeted with other people who can carry hot. Oh, is that right? It's a DOD okay. rule. Uh-huh. So when I, when I said that, I said, Hey, I have a, I carry a uh, hot weapon. I can only be housed with someone. And they said, we don't have anyone like that. You're gonna have to get your own room. I said, Shucks. <laughs> Finagled. What a finesse. What a finesse. That's that that is your CI training at oh. its best. Welcome to Border Wars, the first bilingual podcast that goes beyond the border. Welcome to the Border Wars Podcast, the number one podcast of the Americas. Uh, the only bilingual podcast that takes you beyond the border. I say we're the number one podcast of the Americas, not because of me but because of our guests. And today we have a familiar face for those that have been watching or listening to the podcast, but somebody that I think everyone needs to get to know a lot better because I've gotten to know him and I've been very impressed, not just with his background, and we're going to get into that, but also with his experiences. But before I introduce our guests, be sure to subscribe uh, to our podcast. If you're listening to us on Spotify or watching us on YouTube, subscribe and on YouTube, hit that little bell icon to make sure you get all our notifications. Uh, and then if you're watching this video, go ahead and hit that like button because that helps us with the algorithm. David, good to see you. I'm, I'm in your town now. Yeah, welcome. Thank you. That, you weren't like, so we were talking a little bit before this uh, about a month ago, maybe less, two weeks ago. And you're like, I'm like, I'm whining, right? From Washington, D.C. I'm like, it's hot. It's hot. Oh, yeah. So, and you were like, no, bro, it's yeah. hot. Where I'm at in Dallas. And I was like, no, David, you don't, you don't understand this. It's hot in DC too. You know, dude, you were right. This is another level. This is another level of heat. I mean, is this, you guys just used to this or what? I mean, I don't know if you get used to this. I mean, there are a few local, you know, native Texans that are probably uh, comfortable. You, you, uh, you just adjust to yeah. it. It comes every year at the same time. But this year, this is, I want to say the fifth or sixth longest period in history for Texas of 100 degree or above weather. Wow. Consistent. No break. 100 or above. How, uh, how, how high has it gotten? Oh, it's like it's gotten to 108, 109. Yeah. And then some, I mean, even at that point, it feels like 110, 120. It was like that. I mean, this last few weekend, it was, it was, it was 106, 105, but it felt hotter. You know what I noticed? It's like when you're walking. If you stand still and you're in the sun, it's better just to keep walking because yes. you feel like you're cooking. Yes. <laughs> you feel like at some point you're like, I'm getting baked, right? I'm getting, you know. I tell people that that when you preheat your oven and it, it's ready and you open it and you get that blast, that's what it feels like now. You just walk outside and you get this blast. It kind of reminds me of a rock. That's the only well, other place I've I was going to say that, like, well, a rock was another, that's even another that, level. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
But uh, I haven't felt this kind of heat in a while. And, you know, I guess it gets hot in D.C. We had a little bit of humidity and stuff. But no, you guys are definitely feeling that desert heat. But the good news is uh, we're here in Dallas. We're here in your hometown. It was actually not your hometown because I want to take it to the beginning. So you're actually a Floridian, right? You're, you're born and raised in Florida, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, Tampa. Tampa. And then you went to school there? Yes, grew up there, went to school uh, in Tampa. Till, uh, and then I went to the University of South Florida, which is uh, the university in Tampa, and uh, didn't leave didn't leave the Sunshine State until I was, whatever, 22. Is that for the military then? That was for the Air Force, yes. So t- uh, let's go into that because obviously, you know, we're going to get into a bunch of topics, things that you're working on with SFS right now, but also you, the work that you're doing in your, in your full-time capacity. But what we want to talk specifically about is that point of joining the military. I think that's an important point for a lot of folks. Obviously, I have my own journey into the U.S. Armed Forces. But tell us about that that point that made you want to go into the military. Like, what what uh, was one of the factors that that made you take that yeah, decision? Yeah, you know, I remember in, in school, my, my dad served in the Army for a bit. But it was during Vietnam, and I think everyone got their, got their time. Um, or at least ran away from it. But they, most people had some sort of connection, it felt like, at that time. So we served a few years, but it, I didn't grow up with it. I wasn't born yet. And um, I remember, I think it was in high school, that uh, I began thinking about college and began thinking about the future. And I thought to myself, I was playing sports. I liked adventure. I mean, my grandparents were missionaries in, in the Dominican Republic. My, you know, my grandfather was from Cuba. My mom grew up telling stories of living through the civil war in the Dominican Republic, uh, back in the sixties when Trujillo was in power or I'm sorry, after Trujillo was assassinated and a few years later, the country fell. And so I was grew up with these stories of adventure and, uh, and intrigue. And, and I wanted that, mm. but I wasn't quite sure what that looked like. I didn't feel called to be, uh, be a missionary. Um, I mean, my abuelo was a pastor. My dad was a pastor. I mean, I had this, I felt like I was going to be a pastor or a teacher because that's what everyone in my family <laughs> yeah. was. And, but I, uh, you know, at some point I went, no, that's not what I want. And, uh, and I remember sitting in the lunchroom of my high school and there was a, there was a gentleman who had graduated probably four years before me. And he came back and he was at the Air Force Academy. That makes a difference, right? Oh, he came you see, back. You see the guys that go right out of the academy or they come right out of boot camp and, and they come and they're like, they look like uh, posters, essentially. Yes. They don't look like the same guy oh, that went was, in. I told him later, I said, you know, you could just walk around in your uniform from the Air Force Academy. Mm-hmm. And that's the best recruiting tool. Yeah. Don't even say a word. Just walk through a local high school <laughs> and you'll have kids signing up. Then he walked through and when I saw him, I said, that's it. Adventure. I get to work out, you know, I'm forced to, to work out because being an athlete, yeah. you know, I wanted that. Um, what, what was your sport? I, I grew up mainly playing uh, basketball and okay. baseball cool. and then got into soccer later right, and yeah. fell in love with soccer. So my Three sport sp- athlete. Good deal. Yeah, my, my sports from my freshman year was year round okay. playing, playing sports and it, it can, uh, and I could never play golf because my baseball swing Oh, it ruined, it ruined, ruined, the, yeah, ruined the golf. That's interesting. So, yeah. uh, but anyway, when I saw him, that's when it clicked. I said, okay. that's what I want. And after that, then it just came a matter of logistics. What does that look like? I'm not going to the Air Force. This guy was smart. He's still in. Yeah. He's a doctor. Oh, really? He's a, yeah. He's and, still in the Air Force? Yes. Yeah. And uh, and so I knew I, I wasn't ready to compete for a, a Air Force Academy spot. And then I was told about ROTC in college. Okay. I only knew of ROTC in high school. Uh-huh. I didn't know they had him in college. college. And so my, um, I have a cousin who had just retired from the Navy 
and I told my dad, which you would appreciate this. I said, all right, I'm going to, I'm ready to go uh, to the Marine Corps recruiting station. I'm ready to sign up. Cause I thought <laughs> Marine those Corps, the guys. Yeah, badass, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. man, I was like, I'm already split First some skulls. I'm ready, man. <laughs> and, uh, and my dad said, well, hold on, just talk to your cousin first. I said, okay. I mean, I've already made up my mind, but sure. And, uh, and my cousin said, listen, go to college, get your degree and do ROTC. And I was like, what's that? That's the best advice oh, ever. It was- <laughs> I have I- a different story, but I didn't get that advice. Well, he told me that and I went, yeah, I, I said, okay, I'll go check it out. So I went my senior year of high school and I, I shadowed okay. the ROTC group. So instead of going straight into the military after high school, you went to ROTC because they said, you know what, get your education yeah, and then you can come out as an officer. For sure. Again, I didn't know what the difference between an officer and an enlisted would. Yeah. I had no clue. And he said, no, an officer, he said, you have rank, you get paid more, and all these things. And I went, okay, well, that's so great. So this was your recruiter? No, this was my cousin. Dude, He's- I wish I had your cousin. I <laughs> know <laughs> <laughs> it told me. Let me tell you my story real quick. And you'll, yeah, yeah. you'll reflect on that. Because when I went into the Marines, and remember, I think it's the same time frame. Maybe I was pre-9-11. Were you the same? Yes. Okay. So, you know, different mindset, right? You're not going in the military thing. You're going to war. Right. Um, so I'm going into the Marine Corps and my, I had no background in the military, but none of my family was in the military. I didn't know anything. I didn't even know you had to go to boot camp. <laughs> I thought you just, it's like a job. You signed the contract. Like, when do I start? Mm-hmm. Like, no, no, no. Wait, you got to go to like this island first. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I found out that I was like, oh, but you got to take the entry exam, right? The ASVAP. So one of the main reasons I chose the Marine Corps was not because of any image of the Marine Corps. It was mostly because my best friend was going in to the Marine Corps. Uh, and I just wanted to go and work, you know, well, let's do it together. We're going together. Um, and so we were going in and we take the ASVAP and uh, I scored well. I scored like in the ninth percent. I think I got like a 90, 91, 92 uh, on the ASVAP, which uh, you know, out of 99. So it's mm-hmm. rather up there. Uh, my friend didn't do as well, right? Um, and he might be watching this, but he, he, the recruiter goes to him. He's like, yeah, so I have some options for you there. Uh, you can go into like a cook, you warehouseman or a grunt infantry. And he's like, you know, infantry, infantry, of course, you know, you don't want to, you know, be badass and all that. And, uh, I was like, okay, I'll go infantry too. He said, wait, wait, he's like, you got other options. He's like, oh, wait, what is it? He pulled me aside, but I went in because I wanted to go with my friend. So I just like said, I'm going to go wherever he goes. If he goes cook, I'm going cook. If he goes grunt, I'm going grunt. But I had no clue that you had to go through all this training <laughs> before they actually let you do the work. And I had no clue that enlisted was, you know, basically less pay. It just, you know, you, you got to go to college before you can get any of the the, the more senior seniority in, in, in the U.S. Armed Forces. So anyway, that's my story. But I think it kick it back to you because you got good advice. Yeah, well. I were looking back on it at the time I, I just took it, you know, with a grain of salt. I said, I, let me go look at this ROTC, whatever this ROTC thing is that you're talking about. Let me go look at this officer thing you're talking about. So I went and shattered. I got permission to go out there and just shadow them. And my first blush, when I saw the uniforms that the air force like wears, yeah. no, you didn't like, them. Oh, I thought they were awful. Oh. I was like, no, no girls are going to like that, dude. <laughs> Come on. That's why I want to go in the Marines. They got yeah, these they, oh, sharp. Oh, the nice uniform. You yeah. do. You have these sharp yeah. uniforms. And so, you know, my mom, who who is, uh, you know, she's the Latin and she's very straightforward. She's like, get your head on straight. Are you really thinking about the uniform? That's what you're concerned about? You know? And so she kind of put the icing <laughs> on the cake, like, you know. So your- my parents would have been the opposite. Like, <laughs> you better get a good uniform. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's all about that picture. No, she, she, they, between her, my mother and my cousin, they were 
very, uh, very helpful in, in directing my decisions and, and at least giving me good advice. So, uh, you know, one, once I sat down and really looked at the pros and cons, because then I, I didn't know, I knew there was boot camp. I just didn't know the process. I didn't know how it worked. And once I started looking through it uh, logically, I really saw where, listen, future is best if you at least get your degree and go through the ROTC program. And the beauty was the ROTC program, you don't have to commit. You can take yeah. it as an elective for two years. True. So I said, okay, well, let me, and then now mind you at the time I'm playing baseball mm-hmm. and I had a few scouts that were looking at me for college. I had a scout from the blue Jays come look at me. So I was, so you're a legit baseball player. What was your position? Center field. Center field. Okay. And I was, I was really, I wasn't like a superstar, yeah. but I had enough talent that people were looking at me and wondering, Hey, who's the really famous Dominican baseball player? You know, Juan Marichal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you got it. You got it in your blood. Oh man. Yeah. Dominicanos, man, they know how to play. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. Um, in fact, my mother would tell stories growing up. She'd go to the Capitol to watch uh, um, Joe Morgan, yeah. uh, Johnny Bench. They would come during the uh, winter and come play winter ball in the DR. And uh, our family was very close with the Alus. So okay. uh, Felipe Alou would would preach at my Wardle's church in the DR. So oh. so we have a, a lot of fun little connections there. But, uh, but anyway, I wasn't convinced. I still thought, man, maybe I want to play baseball. And I remember uh, – like that first semester, my coach from high school, who's best friends with the baseball coach out at the University of South Florida, he said, listen, you got to take a look at this kid. You know, please don't let him go. He's got good talent. And the coach said, I'm stacked in outfield. I don't need anybody in outfield. And that mm-hmm. was kind of my moment, if you will. You okay. know, I had sat down. I was literally, I'm in church praying, going, what do I do? And at that moment, it was baseball is not it. So I just decided, okay, I'm committing to the military. And I, and. So if this coach had recruited you, your path. Oh, I mean, completely. Absolutely. Different. I would have, and I'm not saying I would have done well, <laughs> yeah. but, but I would have definitely, I would have said, okay, that's, you would have took a shot. I would have, going I would, pro. Have, yeah. I would have absolutely taken a shot, at least for the college, yeah. college ranks. So, but I was able to join the ROTC program, got in and, and, uh, uh, and the air force again, whether it was uniforms and I get into the job, the selections. And I said, I don't want, what is this? It's a lot of technical, yeah, yeah. a lot of flying yeah. missiles, uh, there was a lot of things that I had no interest in. Yeah. And there was one, one career path was the office of special investigation. Yeah, tell us about this. Cause you know, in the first in the world of the military, but even more so, even in the world of Intel, it's not a well-known MOS. It's not a well-known uh, occupational specialty because it is in the intelligence community. Uh, you are essentially the, the uh, human intelligence branch of the air force and the counterintelligence branch of the Air Force, but you're also a federal law enforcement officers because you go through the training of what they do at, was it in Fletzy in, in Georgia? Is that where they do it? Um, so that's, it's really a kind of a unique thing. I mean, I guess there's other elements, I guess NCIS might be similar and to some regards on the, on the Naval side, but tell us about OSI and then, and then tell us about how you, your journey into OSI. Well, I, I was, I lucked at whether it was divine intervention or luck at, there, um, there was an OSI agent going to school at the University of South Florida through uh, AFIT, the program where you can go get your master's. Um, and, uh, and she was selected and she was actually at the school. When I went to the ROTC program, I, I can't recall how I stumbled upon this, but I just remember talking to the, uh, to the captain who was over my group when I was a sophomore. And I said, you know, I really wanted to spy. 
I want to be a spy. You want to be a spy. And he was like, you, you told him that? Oh yeah. I said, I want to be a spy. I mean, I, I had dreams of being dropped in Havana, you know, <laughs> in my Guayabera and walking around, you know, pretending to be someone else. And then, you know, so I, I said, I want to be a spy. And he goes, we, Air Force doesn't really have that. And he goes, well, actually there is this group, but I don't know anything about them. Okay. Nobody does. Yeah. And I, and I, <laughs> that's why they're spies. Yeah. And immediately I said, that's what I want. He goes, well, good luck because I don't know anybody that's in it. I don't know how you get into it. And so that became my, my, I'm like a dog with a bone. When I get obsessed yeah. with something, it's like, you know, that's so right. I said, okay, let me figure this out. So I began a process of asking around, trying to figure out, I was shocked how many Air Force people had no idea yeah. who they were, where they were at, or if they did know them, it was through somebody. Which, or I'd say even in the Intel community. Oh yeah. There's yeah. folks that don't know that. No, people don't yeah. under, and those that do understand OSI, um, they're not talking to you. Yeah. You know, they're not even sure if they're allowed to talk to you about it. And that's when this uh, female, Sylvia, which I owe her a lot for doing this, she came down to the RTC program um, and just happened to swing in there. And she was an officer and she said, hey, I just want to let you know, I'm on telling the captain I was talking to. Um, she said, I'm on campus. If there's any cadets that and are She was OSI. Yes. Yep. And interested, I'd be happy to talk with them. And my captain goes, hold right there. You know, picks up the phone back when, you know, cheap little cell phones. You know, and he T9s me, you know, hey, Grantham, you need to come to my office right now. And I'm, oh, great. Oh, man, what did I do? You know, I get in there and he said, this is Sylvia. She's an OSI agent. And I just went, you got to be kidding me. And from there, she walked me through what OSI is, where they're at. So you were, you were already in the Air Force? No, I was still in the ROTC. Oh, the ROTC. Is, okay. Yeah, so I'm-, I'm So a, you can pre-select your MOS before you go to the academy or before you go to basic training? You you have to select it in ROTC. So your senior year, mm -hmm. they give you your wish list, okay. which, is a, which is a bunch of crap. They yeah. tell you where you're going to go. Okay. So, um, but- well, That's much more structured. Because in the Marine Corps, you know, officer, uh, you actually got to go to the basic school. And then it depends on where you finish in the basic school and what slots are available and open. So it depends on what MOS you actually get. Well, it does work like that after you've selected or like your friend. Yeah. If there's a test that comes down, they're pretty okay, quick okay. to go, hey, I see your first top three are pilot. Well, let me tell you, big guy, you're not going to be a pilot. The best you can do is McDonald's. <laughs> so let's go. try to work you somewhere else. Uh, ciao. Um, yeah, exactly. So I, over, over the course of several conversations, she really guided me through the process and what to expect. And from there, it just became a matter of uh, working towards that goal. And she told me, she said, it's very, very difficult mm. to get in. Incredibly difficult. And I said, okay, well, I mean, I'll work for it. She goes, sometimes it doesn't matter how hard you work. Yeah, look at it's the draw. that difficult. And I said, okay. So I made it a point. I mean, I took 20 hours of classes my last two years of school, which is three or three hours over full time. Um, and that's including summer school. I was wing commander of one of the largest units in the Southeast. We had something like 250 cadets. Mm -hmm. So I ran that for a semester and I was other leadership at the time. So I was, I, I was working on my black belt. I was practicing my Spanish. I was doing everything I could. Black belt in what, in Taekwondo or karate? Yeah, yeah. yeah, Taekwondo. And so I wanted to come out going, wow, this guy can kick my butt, can translate something. He's got a degree. So you're preparing yourself. Oh, I, yeah. I'm doing everything I can. Okay. And even then, um, uh, you know, she reminded me, hey, it's difficult. So anyway, you get to your process and you put down your wish list, yeah. what jobs you want, where you want to go. Mm -hmm. You hand that in, Air Force does the rest. They, they look at your ranking within your class. Yeah. I was ranked number two yeah. out of 30. I 
Is it what is it? Is it like a, an academy boot camp? What's, what's the uh, you go officer to a, basic training? Yeah, you go to an ROTC boot camp. Okay. Uh, like in the summer? Yes. Yeah. Most of the time it's between your junior or sophomore and junior year. It just depends on where you're at. Mm-hmm. But, but you go through anywhere from a six to an eight week program at three different bases. And, uh, and that's your boot camp. You come back, once you've gone to boot camp, you're committed. Yeah. So I was committed the last two years. Mm-hmm. After that, my grade's got to stay up. You know, everything has to, I, I have to, you, you're pretty much in the military. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so I just worked towards that and filled it out. Um, they look at your ranking, your GPA, they look at endorsements. And I remember I got selected for missiles. Okay. The worst I mean, yeah. it was like my fifth. Like, what you, like, like ordnance or? Yeah. So it'd be yeah. like, I, I can't remember what the, I would essentially been in a, in a bunker somewhere. Like a missile tech. Yeah. yeah. Right. And I was, I was supremely disappointed. Yeah. I mean, just, but OSI does its process differently. So you do your wish list and then you send your application for OSI separate. Okay. So what happens is that application, if you get in, it supersedes everything else. Okay. And so I filled that out, sit that in, you hear back first from that. And, uh, and it was, I mean, I put Intel, I put all these other positions yeah. and they came back and said, uh, how was the missiles? And I was like, that's my fourth choice. Like, I'm ranked <laughs> number. And I remember the general came down who runs ROTC and he wanted to meet with the current wing commander and the former, I was the former when he came to visit. So we're sitting there and he goes, well, how do you guys feel? What's something we could do? I said, you know, sir, I'm having a problem telling my <laughs> cadets to work hard. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I've worked my tail off for two years. I'm ranked second in my class. I have a near 4.0 GPA and I got my fourth choice of a job. Yeah. And he went, oh boy, he was not. That, that oh, point I he? went. He would have been like, welcome to the Air Force, son. Yeah. <laughs> he so, just looked at me like, yeah. I didn't really want your opinion, son. You know? <laughs> if, I want, if, I want, if I want your answers, I'll give them to you. Exactly. <laughs> so. And uh, and I, I was, but looking back, I remember. Uh, so actually, let's do this before we go into that. because Yeah. Explain to us what OSI is, because I think a lot sure. of people are probably watching this like, what are they talking about? It's a spy agency. What is it? You know, explain what the Office of Special Investigations is in the United States Air Force. The best way to understand it is the FBI CIA for the Air Force. Okay. We do both functions uh, and it's more probably more akin to the FBI Although in a deployed environment, we do counterintelligence. And, but nevertheless, uh, we handle felony and above level criminal cases. And we are the human, the human intelligence, counterintelligence collectors for the yeah. Air Force. So it, it is. Well, since when has it been around? I mean, because this isn't. This a, came in 1948. Oh, really? So it's been around that long? It's been around for a long time. Oh, wow. Yes. It's, and it's been, the, the mission has morphed and kind of changed a little bit. By the time I got in. The counterintelligence was. And who are you guys supporting? Like, what's is it? You supporting at the at the division level? Are you supporting? Are you supporting command or what? Do you, command. I mean, you're so. It, it depends on where you're at, but generally, you are. When you split it between criminal and counterintelligence, your criminal is generally there to support the base and its auxiliary units, and so you you don't even report to the wing commander of your base. You report to the IG, okay? Because the wing commander could come under investigation. Correct. Yeah. So now you, you, uh, it's like a, a federal agency working in a local jurisdiction, the mayor, the city, they don't own you, but you try to have a good relationship with them because you are in their territory. Sure. And that's kind of the way it is. Uh, now separate on the counterintelligence and intelligence side, you're supporting air, big air force. Okay. You're, you are part of the Intel community. Yeah. Um, when I was 
first station, South Dakota, all my intelligence was running up to DC directly to DC. They, they were disseminating that yeah. the collection requirements. So is it like the air force department? Do they have like a, a department of intelligence of the air force uh, in, in Washington? Uh, it's more, they do, but the intelligence, of the air force doesn't, do the same thing. They're more, uh, SIGINT okay. and, uh, well, Air Force IG and then, yeah, I guess DOD IG. Um, but that has more of a, f to do with the function of criminal. Mm. So it makes it. Like, and criminal meaning investigating Air Force personnel that might've committed a criminal act. Or correct. Action. Yeah. And you have security forces, which would be, it's kind of akin to the local police yeah. working misdemeanor, uh, cases and you have the FBI and others working felony level cases and that's where OSI runs all those cases for the Air Force. And um, you guys get training and I mentioned this at the office but you guys get training with Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Georgia. Where is it in Georgia again? Glencoe, Georgia. Glencoe, that's right. Yes, yeah. that's where I went. I believe there's a few other stations where you can do it but that's where we go. Fletzy. And we train, yeah, Fletzy. We train with uh, NCIS which is probably for the listeners that's probably the most a similar organization to OSI. Yeah. And the NCIS and National Criminal Investigative, Naval Criminal Investigative Service correct. for the Navy. And the, the only difference is they are civilians. Yeah. OSI, we are officers, enlisted, and civilians, which further confuses people. Because yeah. they're yeah. like, what? You're an agent, but you have rank. And I'm yeah. like, yes. Yeah. And I don't go by my rank. I go by special agent. Yeah. Um, so o OSI has got a lot. It's, it's partly all those... Well, it's all those reasons that people are confused and don't understand what it is. And you can see just trying to explain it. If you talk to someone that's not familiar with the military. Yeah. It is a unique element. There's not a lot like it, mm -hmm. but now take us to like, you're in OSI, you got in, right? They accepted you. You worked your way up there. Like what are your first uh, deployments? What are your first uh, assignments? My first Coming out of Florida, they sent me to South Dakota. Okay. I guess they- And the training's where? In the Fletzy and then- Fletzy, well, you first report to your base. Okay. Generally, this is not, but for me, you report to your base, you report to your office, your OSI office. Then they schedule you for class Okay. at, at Fletzy. Okay. So I return to, uh, so I go from Florida, drive to South Dakota. Three months later, I drive back to Georgia, which is about five hours north of my house. Uh and I spend the next five to six months there. Okay. And uh, there we go through the training where we do all the criminal uh, intelligence, running sources. Law enforcement. Law enforcement and the, now, mind you, the Iraq war has, uh, yeah. and Afghanistan. All yeah, this what's the time frame here? What's so the... we're looking at, uh, I graduated in 2004. Okay. So I, I went to school 0405. Okay. So okay. the war is already going on. So the training has really shifted Focused a lot on counterintelligence. Okay. Guys, every one of you was going to be in the war zone soon. Here's how you run the, sources. It's a bigger CT mission, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and you can see some of these old school guys yeah. who didn't have this. They're bringing back a lot of people who just got back from deployment and training us. And Did OSI always have a CI mandate or was it mostly just, you know, basically internal investigations? That's a good question. I'm not entirely sure. I, I think the mandate was always there. Uh, but I'm not sure, just like the FBI, I'm not sure they even knew what that mandate was. Okay. So I'm, I, I'm not entirely sure if it was uh, a mandate, but not clear as yeah. to what that was. And then as time went on, oh, this is counterintelligence. I mean, that, after 9-11, we just had to relook at all right. of our intelligence services and like, where do we have specific tools? Where do we have specific authorities? Who can do what and where? 
because once you get in the theater, I mean, it's pretty much you're in you're in country, and yeah. and we got to figure like uh, if you're you know uh, the commander uh, of you know CENTCOM or whoever that's you got to know all the tools at your disposal that you have to engage with uh, the mission and engage with the adversary, and so OSI then I think becomes a more attractive tool because of the right. training you guys have, the parameters of your mission set, the parameters of so. I think that's interesting. So you you go to uh, what, what Dakota was it? North Dakota, South Dakota, South Dakota, South yeah. Dakota, Ellsworth, Ellsworth Air Force Base. Okay, and how long were you there? I was there for about two years. I was only there for about a year before I was scheduled for deployment, and I and I lucked out. With, I came back. So going back to training, when we were training counterintelligence, that's when I said, "This is it. This is the spy thing I want." <laughs> that's, 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 that's what it is. That's That's what these guys do. That's yeah. it. And I said, "This is." You do a lot stuff. of role playing. Oh, all the time, yeah, yeah. all the time, and. Uh, the role playing was absolutely hilarious because <laughs> the actors that are working as your sources, you're thinking, you know, I'm not going to be able to buy that. Like, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't feel real. My first interrogation, the kid across from me, you would have thought he was an actor. Yeah. I remember I called back to my trainer. I said, you know what? I take it all back. <laughs> this guy, those yeah, actors yeah. you had, this is exactly they're what convinced. they, anyway, they're good. No, they're yeah. good. Yeah. So when I, when I was, um, when I saw that, when I started doing that, I said, that's what I want. So when I came back to South Dakota, I immediately said, when can I get into counterintelligence? Yeah. Because it's kind of its own specialty. You can stick with criminal, yeah. and then within criminal, you might go to crime scene or drugs. Yeah. Or I said, I don't want any of that. I want counterintelligence. My boss said, dude, you're like 23. You want everything. Just calm down. Yeah. Get your training. And so I went through and started doing the the uh, that first year where you're just doing everything. I ran fraud cases, drugs, did it all. And I never lost my appetite. I said, I want counterintelligence. And finally he said, okay, you're now in charge of the counterintelligence office oh, wow. in South Dakota, which isn't exactly a beacon for <laughs> yeah, <spies. sure. laughs> So, yeah. but it was good. It was good. Well, what is the threat matrix there? In, in well, interestingly, uh, the B-1 bombers are at Ellsworth That's Air true. Force Base. True, yeah. And uh, they were doing a lot of travel to Europe. They okay. actually did a special trip to Moscow. Okay. And I was getting all kinds of intelligence from those guys as I came back. I would okay. debrief them and the stuff they were telling me I mean, it was out of spy novels, and, yeah. and so I was doing that. But also, because the B-1s are in South Dakota, you get these one-off, or yeah. what appear to be one-off guys working at the local mall mm. uh, who are from a foreign country of some sort. And, okay. And they had no reason to be there, and a pilot would come back and Were they say, trying to get in through, like, contractor agencies or something to do services for the base to get look at the B-1? or? The yeah, but those guys kind of stood out. Yeah. So it was more of collecting, because, you know, Rapid City, it's a small relatively small city it's not it's not too small but you enough that you could hide if you're a spy yeah. and well there's so many military all you have to do is go to a restaurant strike up a conversation with someone at a bar and there's a good chance they're a pilot a navigator on the b1 uh -huh. or a mechanic okay and so the, you, you there were several instances where people uh with accents or from foreign countries were, were talking to pilots in the mall or at a restaurant asking them questions and they thought this guy shouldn't know that shouldn't even know that kind of engine. Mm. You have to be around engines to even know to ask those questions. Mm. And so those were the things that we we encountered. But then a friend of mine came back from Iraq and he he just started telling me stories about what we're doing over there. Mm. And I said, oh, I got to go. So what time frame is this now? This is, we're coming up into 2000, we're still in 2005. Okay. So this uh, is like when Iraq's going really bad. Yes. Oh, it's going down. Because the insurgency is getting, yes. yeah. I was there in, 03, then towards the tail end of 04. And it, I remember it was a marked difference when we invaded in 03 
and the insurgency, you can see it bubbling from day one. You can see it just, you know, because once they, the, the, was it the debothification? Yeah, yeah. All the military guys started, you know, putting their arms in different safe houses. And then by the time you get to like 2004, the insurgency is like risen up. 2005 was one of the bloodiest years in the Iraq war. Uh, you remember Fallujah, uh, you remember the Sunni Triangle. And so, you, and so you're, you're still in South Dakota, but your, your buddies are coming back from the war. And they're telling me about it. And th this is, you're right. This is where um, they were starting to throw on terms like this is a civil war, yeah. you know? And so he comes back and he's telling me these stories. And, and um, well, interestingly enough, he gets shipped off to DC. So he PCS, you know, the yeah. permanent change of station yeah. as we PCS in the military, he moves. I said, please keep me in mind while you're up there. Yeah. Well, it wasn't a few months later that well, he calls me and says, listen, somebody else got injured, can't deploy. And we got, we need someone to deploy quickly. They're not keen on you because you're only, you're, you're a little bit over a year out of the Academy. Oh, you're too young. You're, you're too, too green. Yeah. Too green. You're only a second Lieutenant, a little <coughs> butter bar. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I said, well, what do I got to do? He goes, nothing. You just sit tight. Yeah. Made a few phone calls. My boss was a big advocate for me there in South Dakota veteran. This guy has been around the block. I mean, he, he, everyone in OSI knew him. And if he said Grantham's good to go, I was good to go. And, okay. and that's what he did. And so, uh, so, but they said, first, we're going to send you to Kuwait. And that's where I landed. Said, let's get you in a foreign environment, working foreign sources. That was your first foreign assignment was straight to Iraq? No, straight to Kuwait. Or Kuwait, but like in preparation to go to Iraq. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was, it was kind of a, let's get your feet wet. And which was great. I, I OSI made a very smart decision doing that because I came off the plane in Kuwait like I was dropping in freaking Fallujah. <laughs> you realize there's malls here. <laughs> there are malls. <laughs> People. I end up at the there's Crown a McDonald's plot. right over yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. They're like, hey, calm down. Was it Doha? Guy. Yeah, Doha. Uh, no, we flew right into Kuwait City. Okay. And uh, we offload. We go to the Crown Plaza. And that's, yeah, that yeah, was yeah, my yeah, deployment. Yeah, yeah. And I thought. Well, <laughs> not quite, not quite the field. Yeah. I said, wow, this is incredible. So, you know, the first week I'm eating steak, smoking hookah, yeah, you know, yeah. talking to the Kuwait is nice. Oh, I liked Kuwait. And I like people Kuwait. are, yeah. the people are great. The, the leadership was great. They were very helpful. And, uh, but I really got a taste of it and it helped me uh, with the culture, right? Well, that's the thing is I, I always grew up loving culture and exploring new cultures. Mm -hmm. And what I, and once I was there, I really had to check myself to go, Hey, don't become so enamored with the culture that you forget this guy could be working you. Yeah. You yeah. know, you have to be very careful. And so it was a real learning curve for me at first and really had to be able to check myself and go, Hey, that's interesting discussion. This entering food. If were you, you doing like collection in Kuwait? Correct. You were. Okay. That was smart. Okay. Yeah. And we're, we're supporting the war effort because the logistics train left Kuwait into Iraq. Yeah. So that was a really the main, but Kuwait was just so how, how does this work? Do you guys attach to specific, because like in the Marine Corps, our counterintelligence, human intelligence guys, they attach to a specific units, right? So we're like combat, what was it called? A uh, combat capable or something. We're, 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 not, we're not a combat arms in MOS, but we're like a combat support, combat capable MOS, where we have to be combat arms capable so that we can attach to a, a grunt unit, a recon unit, who, who if they're going to go on a raid or something, we're like right behind them, right? And we're collecting as they're, uh, you know, basically going into these houses do you guys attach to a combat unit or do you guys just support at the high level since there's not that many of you to begin with? Yeah, that's a great question because, and that's the other thing that confuses people about OSI. We generally support air force assets wherever they are at. Okay. And that asset can, it's really up to command 
to decide where those are in, in Air Force, big air, we said big air force, yeah. big air force will request request support to units depending on where they're at. So they're generally the rule of thumb is there needs to be an Air Force Nexus mm-hmm. or a request from the Pentagon to have our specialty deployed to a certain area. In Kuwait, we had a logistics train going from the airport all the way in. Air Force personnel managed the airport. There's oh, Air, of course. Yeah. There's an Air Force base yeah. in Kuwait. There's an Army base in yeah. Kuwait. So what ended up happening, the short story is, there were officers, because there was no billeting at the airport, mm-hmm. and the nearest Air Force base was two-hour drive. They said, okay, we're going to house them in hotels downtown so they can go straight to the airport work and go home. Well, in Kuwait, it's either the Crown Plaza, five star, or it's a one star. Okay. You know, Air Force, we're kind of prima donna. So we're like, we can't be staying in the one star. That's where the Marines stay. That's right. That, we're not Marines. Come on. I need the five star. So they put us in five star. And so what they said, is, we need OSI agents because there's people spying on these guys. Yeah. And and so we followed. Okay. And and mm-hmm. so that, that it started as a few guys. Then it developed into uh, two teams. One would be at the airport, one would be at the base, but we worked in downtown Kuwait City. Okay. And that that's essentially how we got there. Okay. And at what point then do you then get the the mission parameters to go into Iraq now? You're you're done with uh you know, helping the force protection around the base and things like that. You're now moving into country in Yeah, the, the well, sadly, uh we had an agent who was killed in Iraq, in Baghdad, and his best friend was in Kabul, Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to escort the body back to the States. Okay. Well, I got the phone call and they said, we want someone to backfill for this guy until he gets back. So I'm thinking I'm going to Iraq. And they said, no, you're going to call, you're going to, uh, yes, uh Bagram yeah. air base. Yeah. So it was a real change of pace going from Arab culture. I would prep, totally different yeah. prepping mentally mm-hmm. to, to end up in Iraq. And I'm within, within maybe a month of being in Kuwait, I'm bounced uh, up to Bagram Air Base. Okay. And that was my first foray into the war zone. Oh, so you didn't go straight, you didn't go to Iraq, you get into uh, Afghanistan. Yes. All right. Now, the, 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 well, the experience helps for sure. Imagine in Kuwait being able to do uh, source operations and all that stuff. But did you have to go through another period of getting your feet wet in Afghanistan or you get thrown right in the fire? I got thrown right in the fire. But thankfully, I had people around me at Bagram who were experienced, knew what they were doing. So, I, I was able to learn quick what to do and what not to do. In Afghanistan, I tell people it, it was the closest you're going to get to to really authentic war zone, historically speaking. Now, I'm a history major, yeah. so going there uh, was fascinating in just that aspect. And, yeah. and, for instance, we're driving through the mountains of Afghanistan one day, and I see this little white, blonde-haired kid mm-hmm. pop out from a mud hut. I said, what in the world was that? Did you see that kid? He looked American. And uh, and the translator didn't even budge. He goes, oh, yeah, the, the bloodlines from uh, Alexander the Great yeah. are still up here in the mountains because they inbreed. And so they, they have pretty – and I went, oh, man, that's a joke. And he yeah. goes, no, no, I'm, I'm serious. Sure enough, man, <laughs> the more we started going to villages, every once in a while you'd see one of these kids. So historically yes. speaking, the Afghan uh, war was uh, fascinating to be there. And the great graveyard of empire, right? Yes. And, and the time, the short time I was there couldn't, wouldn't do justice to what you learn. How long were you there? I was only there for 
45 days. Oh, wow. Very back short. Feeling yeah, dirty, yeah. But we were active every day outside the base. That's crazy to think about because, you know, this, again, it's called, you're in 05, is that right? This is, this is 06 now. 06 now? Okay, yeah, so I'm deployed January of 06. I ended up in Afghanistan at roughly around March. Okay. And Bagram now, you know, Bagram now is in the hands of the Taliban, right? Yes. Uh, and so that, we talked about that in a webinar that we did, I think, during the, the after the, the withdrawal, the 9-11, the 28th anniversary and all that. And so we, we covered some of that. But it, it is kind of like telling for a lot of folks that, I never served in Afghanistan, but for folks that did serve in Afghanistan, to see like everything you guys did, the work, even if it's 45 days, but nonetheless, you saw it. You were there, you saw it, you saw what it was there, you saw the U.S. presence, you saw why we were there, you saw the local Afghan population and everything. And then, you know, to see it kind of all just collapse. And Well, I, I felt uniquely situated because as OSI, we were always, out, as we say, outside the wire. Yeah. We were gone off the base. So I was, from day one, I was waist deep in the culture with Afghans, with our sources, learning, uh, developing their information. And it was... Looking back, I'm kind of surprised at all I've learned, all I learned there in such a short period, because it felt like I was there for a year. The now, was of, this, what, were you guys looking at Al-Qaeda? Were you guys looking at jihadists? Or were you guys looking at something specific to the, to the base or wherever the, you're at? Yeah, the main priority for OSI, at least in Afghanistan, is force protection. Yeah. So we're looking at protecting the base, base. first and foremost. After that, you're developing sources just like anyone else in the intel community. Generally, you kind of want there to be a nexus to the security of the base, but but mission creep and then other variations of that mission propel you into different uh, subsets of missions. So one of them is buying back munitions. Okay, you know, so many of our guys are getting killed by roadside bombs. Well, that's force protection, and it's in a general sense. So we would develop informants who told us where caches of weapons were. And then we'd go up into the mountains in these villages and buy back the weapons, detonate them up there and then come back just so the Taliban couldn't use them as roadside bombs. So was, was the Taliban the main uh, threat actor that was in Bagram or in and around Bagram at the time? Uh, yeah. Al Qaeda was, was the, was a major threat, but there was fewer in okay. number. So if you encountered Al Qaeda, then you really hit the hornet's nest somehow. Okay. You, yeah, yeah. Yeah. but we were dealing surprisingly. We had several sources that were uh, sharing uh, information about Pakistan, right? some of the activity coming over Afghanistan. Which, uh, I mean, like when I tell you, we were getting information that that was incredible mm -hmm. in that short period. I was it was uh, very high level stuff um, that taught me the dynamics and we're working with working with sources who had very high level information, not all of them, but, but many of them. And, uh, and I learned very quick, these guys are uh, light years ahead of me. I mean, the best I could do was grow my beard and not say something to reveal how young I was because these guys have been at war for years and they're sharing information with me that I'd only read in history books. Mm. Uh, so, so where do you go after Afghanistan? Do you go back to Kuwait? You stay in theater, uh, go straight to Iraq, Go, what was the next? Uh, well, little did I know that OSI was prepping me the whole time. So I came, uh, this gentleman returned to yeah. Afghanistan. So I returned to Kuwait. I hadn't even uh, shaved my beard and I get off the plane and the commander says, uh, hey, you're the only one with war zone experience out of the Kuwait office. And they're now asking for people to go to Camp Buka, which was in Southern Iraq. Yeah, uh, uh. That was our jurisdiction in Kuwait. So okay. Kuwait's, our AOR, Area of Responsibility, mm -hmm. reached into southern Iraq. Yeah. 
we had gone to Camp Buka, which is the famous Where, prison. Where's Camp, Camp Buka specifically? It's, a, it's, it's, I know it's in the, near the border, right? Yeah, it's near the border. It's uh, about 45 miles or 45 minutes south of Basra. Basra, okay, okay. So, and uh, Like towards Umkasar? Or, or? Yes. Okay. Yeah, Safwan is yeah. the nearest small town. Umkasar is, okay. is near that. Okay. And, and it's situated just almost on a triangle, just north okay. of those two. And that's where the, the prison um, course, yeah. When Abu Ghraib shut down, a lot of their inmates came to Camp Buka. Yeah. So, so we, that, we talked to, you know, Bill Edwards. We talked to Bill yes, Edwards, right? And so you yes. guys have a lot in common in that yes. sense that he was at Abu Ghraib doing, um, you know, kind of the threat vulnerability on, on on that, you know. And then so you were down, I don't think at the same time or maybe, but I don't think so. No, he was a little earlier than you were. Yes, I think he was. Yeah. And then you came into Camp Buka. So what, what was Camp Buka like when you get there? Uh <laughs> It was incredible because they said, that, you know, the Air Force, the whole reason they wanted us to go was they had no, again, like I said earlier, we follow Air Force. The Army was losing people, as you're well aware. Mm -hmm. They were losing people at an alarming rate. Air Force people are now filling Army slots. Oh, is that right? Yeah, so they're mm -hmm. pulling Air Force security forces and putting them in Army billets, uh, spots. And because of that, they said, well, we need OSI agents to do counterintelligence support for these guys. We don't have anyone at Camp Buka. Yes, you're in Kuwait, but you're not. We need you on the ground. And they said, okay, grant them. I said, okay. So uh, me and another agent who was a captain at the time, we hopped in and we head up to Camp Buka. We literally had a box of paper, a tough book laptop, mm -hmm. and that was it. Really? And we walked yeah. in with our bags and we said, Hey, we're here. Uh, Air Force called us to be here. And of course, the Army looked at us like, No one told me you were coming. So, <laughs> hey, damn, Air Force guys. Yes. They come. We don't got five star hotels <laughs> in Cambuco, okay? So relax. I said, I, uh, I like the two room suite, please. Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, so we show up. They had no idea we were coming, no idea we were supposed to be there. And uh, I just lucked out because with uh, Air Force eight, uh, OSI agents, you're allowed to carry armed. As you were mm -hmm. in, an, in a, Mm -hmm. deployed environment yeah, yeah. you can't walk around no. hot weapons hot uh, condition one right yeah. yeah we can yeah we're allowed to because of our status as investigators slash counterintelligence officers and because of that you can only be billeted with other people who can carry hot oh is that right it's a DOD okay. rule uh -huh. so when i when i said that i said hey i have a i carry a uh, hot weapon i can only be housed with someone and they said we don't have anyone like that you're gonna have to get your own room i said Shucks. <laughs> Finagled. What a finesse. What a finesse. That's that that is your CIA training oh. at its best. You finessed your way into like a the version of the Camp Buka version of a suite. Absolutely. It, so so that's what I did. I so folks know that is totally a CI move, right? <laughs> that is totally a CI move. Go ahead. Yep, so we ended up uh, doing that. And right off the bat, I mean, like I said, we literally we didn't have an office. We didn't have a a a, a line to hook our computer up to. We had nothing. And, but OSI, you know, we're kind of known for you show up by yourself. Sometimes you deploy by yourself. When I went to Afghanistan, I got on a plane with a bunch of other army guys. They had no yeah. idea who I was. And you just go. And so it's not something we're unaccustomed yeah, to. Yeah. You're used to kind of operating. Like so that, we just yeah. show up and start doing our work. And, uh, once we got the lay of the land. Was it force protection again? Uh, on the, on, on the camp? Yes. But specifically this one was a, was a more multifaceted, um, so what, what is the prison doing at that point? Is it doing detainee? Uh, is it holding Iraqi prisoners? Is that what it is? Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, we have the, we have Al Qaeda. Yeah. This yeah. Is, yeah. This is, this is the, this war. Is the yeah. hardcore guys. Yeah. Um, and this is, this is Al Qaeda. This is 
Al Qaeda in Iraq. So let's let's get into that, right? Because yeah, you know sure. who was just killed uh, not too long ago, right? Yeah. Zawahiri, Zawahiri, right? So the Zawahiri was he were they already building this Al Qaeda in Iraq structure? You know, because he came from Egypt, right? Were they building it already? Or, or I can't remember the time frame of 2006. Where, where was this? Yeah, and that's what I write about in, in my book is yeah. describing this period where I come into Kampuka. And at this point, you're right. AQI is intense. Zaw, uh, Zarqawi. Zarqawi, yeah, yeah. Zarqawi is in charge. He's, in fact, when I was briefed in Kuwait before I got to Kampuka, they said, number one, you're there to protect the base because semis were getting hijacked on the way into Safwan and up to Basra. We want to know who's stealing these trucks and who's taking prisoner people. That's number one. Number two, collect everything you can on Iran. Iran is operating in Southern Iraq. We know they're on the base. We know they're doing something. Number three, Zarqawi. Okay. And no particular order, but those were the three. And they said, you're going to have to go to the prison and work with people in the prison to get Al Qaeda to tell you about Zarqawi. And so, but Zarqawi, this was, this was when it was civil war. In fact, when he blew up the Samara mosque, when mm -hmm. Al Qaeda did, this was in February of 2006. Uh, that's when it really hit that fever pitch where now he was attacking Shia. That's right. That's right. And that was, that was a big moment for us in the Intel community. Cause we knew then it's, there's no rules. Kind of like we talk about, yeah. uh, today yeah. where you look at the global landscape and there's, it's no more of a rules based world. There's no rules in 2006. Uh, Zarqawi said no rules. I'm killing anybody and everyone. If you're not Sunni. And we knew at that point we're in trouble. And that's a good point because Iraq was kind of that microcosm to what now we're seeing in the world because Iraq was a war and it was, everything was, and there was new rules being established uh, that were very different than what the United States armed forces was used to in terms of, uh, the law of land warfare, right? And, you know, we were always building off the previous war. And so take us to there. So Camp Buka, so you're getting high value detainees, I imagine, uh, at the camp, uh, Al-Qaeda folks. Are you debriefing them? Are you, uh, uh, you know, doing what, human source exploitation? Well, what's your main mission there? We focus mainly on the people outside the prison because we had an OSI agent who was already there okay, okay. doing debriefing. So what we did is we would share information with him and he would share information with us Sometimes, a couple of times we accompanied him in there, but for the most part, he built relationships and those were very sensitive relationships. So we were walled off okay. from some of that. He would supply us until we would go back and forth, but we were looking at the workers on the base. Uh, there was a lot of foreign workers, local Iraqis. The other big thing was they were training uh, prison guards because the whole goal, even in 2006, was to hand over, like everything else in Iraq, was to eventually hand this back over to the Iraqis to run it themselves. And th for those that aren't aware, the southern Iraq is, is largely Shia, yeah, yeah. right? So they're pulling prison guards from a population that is Shia, and a lot of the prisoners are Sunni. So it became this really interesting dynamic where we were able to get Sunni information out of the jail and then go to the prison guard camp where they were training and get information from them because they were going off base and coming back. <laughs> they were going home, come back. Yeah, yeah. So we're exploiting a lot of the uh, transient yeah, yeah. Uh, local communities that were coming. Well, that's in interesting. And out. That's yeah. interesting. And so what was Iran's role? Because this before, this was actually before I'd say the broader Intel community uh, at least started communicating about Iran's influence before the Al Sadr brigades and all that started showing up in Iraq. Were you seeing this already starting to form? We, we were, but we were, uh, you're right, we were even skeptical. Yeah. And as a young intelligence officer, you're trying to do your best work. 
but you know some veteran CIA agent yeah. is reading it somewhere going, who is this joker? Yeah, yeah. Iran's not in southern Iraq. They're not, a, you know. So you're really having to collect information as best you can and and hope that you're doing good work. You're adding value to the you're adding value yeah. to the to the narrative. And I remember even back then having agents or having sources who were coming back telling us about uh, Iranian actors who were operating in Umkasser. Mm. And you now this is their playground, Southern Iraq. So it wasn't un, it wasn't like they were trying to hide. We knew they were there and they still were trying to influence local populations against us. And we started putting out reports and I said, you know, I'm getting this straight from sources that are very reliable. I know it doesn't sound right. And then sure enough, we would start hearing back from people in Shoot DC. It down. Yeah. No, well, no, they, they, they would start coming back going, no, we're, we're starting to hear more okay. of this. Yeah, and, yeah, it, yeah. and it it kind of encouraged us to go, no, keep digging. And then sure enough, I tell a couple of stories in my book where, uh, where people were coming from small towns on the border saying, Hey, we're watching Iranians coming over the border in trucks, bringing things and then going back. And I said, well, how do you know they're Iranian? Well, I can hear their accent. All these things that as a young American, I'm like, Oh yeah, I guess there would be a really distinct accent. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, they're speaking Arabic yeah. to these Iraqis, but in a very thick uh, Persian the, accent. Yeah, Farsi, right? Yeah, so Farsi. So, no, so let, let me ask you, uh, give a, a second just to promote the book, because this is a, the way I've described it, right? Because I think your writing style is not like an act. You, you can write an academic. I mean, you're, you're, you have a PhD, but you didn't write this book with that in mind. You didn't write it to, for like an academic audience because it actually tells the story a lot of what you're telling me right now, but or telling the audience too, but it tells it from the perspective of a person that's been there mm-hmm. and been there and done that. Um, the consequences in intelligence officers war. And what I specifically liked about the book is what we kind of talked about up at this point. I don't think there's anywhere in the literature where you can learn about how an Air Force counterintelligence special agent can operate in the height of the war on terror in a battlefield that pretty much to this day is becoming one is to this day one of the bloodiest battlefields that existed in the 21st century. That's really what this book is about. And I don't think there's anyone that there's not another book like that, right? I mean there might be a book about a Navy SEAL doing this, a book about a you know Marines, we we, we have a bunch of books, <laughs> uh, you know, even Green Berets, Army, all that. Air Force isn't known to be in the fight like this, you know, especially at the at the counterintelligence level. And this book, I don't know, is it OSI talked to you about this since, you know, you're out now, you're out of the service, but they'd be like, hey, we want to use this like a recruitment tool or something to, you know, you get know, people I've, enticed about this MOS that maybe now uh, is more known. Yeah, it's interesting. My, I think the most, the greatest compliment I received was from OSI agents who read it and said, this is good. Mm. This is what, this is the way it was. To have them affirm me, it's one thing to have someone outside the community yeah. reading, oh, that was interesting. It's another thing to have people in the community the saying, peers. Yeah. this is legit. That's the way it was. And and you're right. I did write it, what we call narrative nonfiction, yeah. because as a kid, I knew I learned more when someone told me a story that was true, yeah. but told me a story. Yeah. And I wanted people to understand that. It, too often with intelligence, there's these dense books about trade craft and operational things. And it's almost like we can only, we either tell a sexy spy story or some clinical analysis of intelligence. And yeah. I go, we can bring that together. And Marcus Luttrell wrote, wrote his book. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Lone, Lone Survivor. Sur- Lone Survivor. Yeah. And he's a Texan, right? He's like, yes, yeah. yes, he is. And uh, that kind of inspired me as well to take a more narrative nonfiction approach to okay. how I tell my story. 
And you say this in the book, and, and you're gonna, well, I'm just going to ask you to say the same because I don't, I'm not going to remember it. I'm going to butcher it. But it's like, yeah. I'm an ordinary man in an unordinary, yeah. how's it go? An ordinary man in an extraordinary story or with an extraordinary story. Yeah. And, and I think that's the way the book reads, right? It doesn't read like you're like you're boasting or bragging. You're just saying like, look, I made some decisions. They turned out this way. I turned up here. I turned up there. And it consequentially was at a point in history that, matters yeah. uh, and, and and we're reminded of that uh, uh every day i think next year uh is the 20th anniversary of the u.s uh invasion in iraq and the iraq war uh operation iraqi freedom one and then 1.5 and then two and 2.5 and now we're been there so i think it's it's an important point in history and it's and it's kind of a microcosm of what we're seeing in the world today now i want to pivot a little bit to how we met. Mm-hmm. So we met, I can't remember the year, it might have been 2012, 2013, but it, it's been a while. We went uh, quite a while ago. And we met because of a circumstance of uh, mutual uh, interest in what we're looking and researching, right? We have very similar stories. Like, you know, and people that know my story, uh, I, you know, didn't, I went to the Marine Corps, also served in Iraq a little bit before David was there. I wasn't enlisted, never was an officer. Uh, I didn't stay in the five-star hotels. Uh, but I also was in southern Iraq. I was a little, I was a little further north. I was in Akut. So I saw a lot of the Iranian uh, influence in this part uh, of, of the country. And it was my first uh, introduction to like the MOIS, the Vivac, the Iranian Intelligence Services, or the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. And I saw it from the battlefield perspective. And then when I come later, years later, after I get my studies and I see these same elements in Latin America, which is the region which I was most interested in, it kind of blew my mind. It blew, like, you mean the guys that we were fighting, the guys that were like tasked to basically do counterintelligence against in Iraq, in a battlefield, in a war, are where my parents grew up and in, in, in in that. So that kind of boggled my mind. And to this day, I mean, it's just something that just, I'm starting to wrap my head. And it really helped me understand how global the Iran threat network really is, like how much they've actually expanded or in their terms, exported the Iranian revolution. So I'm knee deep in this research. I'm looking at it. I'm traveling to Latin America. I'm collecting, I'm analyzing and, and as a academic, as an investigator. And then I come across uh, David's work. So I think you published a paper about this uh, and you are now out of the military and you're working at a think tank that I think no longer exists by the time was here at base in Texas called the National Center for Policy Analysis. And then I was like, in the, at the time, like, nobody's writing about this, right? I'm writing a little bit, but, and some other guys are writing a little bit. So I saw your paper, and I think that's when we ended up meeting. And so what got you into that topic? You know, from, you know, was it your, similar to your experience in Iraq? How did you get into the Iran, Hezbollah, Latin America world? Yeah, I, I went out to Texas Christian University for my for my PhD. And out there, I was trying to navigate you know, when you're in academia, you kind of want your degrees to talk to each other, especially if if you want to go into academia as a profession. And there was no, my master's is in international relations and there was no, uh, nothing, no Johns Hopkins here in North Texas. And, uh, and I didn't, I had a family. I wasn't going to move them across the country for something. So I went out to TCU and I said, I'd like to uh, do the history program, but I want to do modern history and, uh, and I said, I'd like to do uh, kind of foreign relations, and they have a very good Latin American history program. So I said, that's what I'd like to do. My family, I have family from there. I'm interested academically. And I said, okay. So I was accepted to that program. And that's where I began this, uh, this pursuit, because what I had is a, a familial connection to Latin America. I've traveled there several times. And the Dominican Republic. To the Dominican Republic. But, and, but I also 
uh, had traveled to the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And so I had this experiential interest two worlds, yeah. in, in, in these two worlds. And there was a professor at TCU that uh, I, I said, hey, can I study middle, who was the only Middle East professor? I said, can I study a minor under you? So I have my Latin American major and a minor of Middle East. And, and they said, well, we've never done that. And, uh, and I said, well, I'd like to do it. And they said, oh, okay. And that's your, your stories of doing what nobody's ever done. So that's, yeah. It's constantly. It's like, why can't we do that? <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm constantly going, I'd like to do this. And they go, okay, well, if it fails, yeah. you're out of luck because there is no safety net. So anything yeah. that you try, it's on you. And that's what I did is I, now, now I'm, I'm looking at this historically. Well, of course you get your dissertation period and you go, okay, what are you writing a book on? What's your specialty? And at that point, I'd been looking a lot at uh, Arab or Middle East influence in Cuba. Yeah. And that's where my interest was. But of course, at some point I had to admit to myself, you're not going to Cuba to look at <laughs> the archives. You're not in the Air Force no more. <laughs> you got no credentials. You know, There is no way that no. the Castro regime is going to say, sure, go look at our files in the Middle East during the Cold War. Yeah. Some of the most sensitive topics out of Cuba. One other professor was able to do it. And his story was he walked in, they gave him a few papers. He was led to read them and they had to leave. Okay. He couldn't take them, couldn't do anything else. Um, that was it. And so I began looking around the Latin America and I settled on Argentina because of the attacks, which you've studied the, um, at length, yeah. Yeah. 92 and 94 attacks. And I said, why is Hezbollah attacking Buenos Aires? Like you see all these attacks everywhere else. And then Latin America, yeah, two in, in the course of four, what, three years. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's really fascinating. So that's when I began my exploration. Uh, um, so short story long is me building a dissertation that looked at Arab radical or Middle East conflict, the, the conflict and how it resonated or how it manifested itself in Argentina. Yeah. When which, get- is, which is very important because my studies what it, you know, I focused on Latin America as a whole, but, you know, focused, uh, study AMIA, the bombing in 94, but then also a lot on Venezuela. And it wasn't really till about five or four or five years into that kind of studying that I started to realize I was hitting a wall. And I was like, okay, I understand the network. I understand how the money moves. I understand the logistics around it. I understand who the operators are, but I'm not getting the end game here. I'm not getting the big strategy. So we kind of like went back to being, you know how they say in intelligence, there's no bad intelligence, there's bad questions, right? You got to ask the right questions. You got you to move in the right, in, what they would call information requirements, you know, priority information requirements to be able to move in a sense that you, you're, you're guiding your inquiry to, to an analytical conclusion. So I started to just go back and I was like, you know, it's not, that is important, like, what this guy's doing. Who is this guy? Mm-hmm. Like, how did he get here? How did his family get here? What is that last name? You know, the questions you would ask, like, in Iraq, those are the kind of questions you would want to know in the community. So we started to do that, and we found, wow, there's a whole Pandora's box when it comes to Middle Eastern presence and influence in Latin America and South America in particular. And the three countries, you are, now you'd argue that it's pretty much the whole region, but the at the beginning of this, say, 150 years ago when this migration started happening, there were three key countries, Venezuela, Colombia, and Argentina. Argentina was key to that, to that, uh, to that migration, and then eventually that, that influence was building up. And you were one of the few people that, you wrote a dissertation about it. So I read the dissertation, and I was like, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. And it tracked 100% with what I'm looking at. So this down moves into like a little bit of your work now, the work that you've been doing now. And I want to I start to get into the work we've been doing here at, the, at SFS. So 
you know, we we you you you, you did a stint at the as, as a fellow at the think tank. Think tank doesn't doesn't exist now, but you then ended to, to move into law enforcement, local law enforcement here in in the Dallas Fort Worth area. But uh, to keep your kind of like academic uh, pencil sharp, if you want to call it like that, we began to uh, say, you know, there's an opportunity to do stuff here with as the Center for Secure Free Society but at a state-based level. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're already plugged into the intelligence community at the state level, but even at the federal level, but most, you're working with state officials, you're working with state law enforcement. Um, and, I, and I kind of understood that this is kind of be the future because it, at the end of the day, whatever global national security, trans-regional threat we're working at, it manifests itself at the local level. Absolutely. I think that was, you know, very evident with COVID. Uh, um, more Even things related to uh, Islamist terrorism. Um, but I felt like that that really wasn't being done. And I'm sure the federal government has their ways of doing it and it works, but I'm talking about at a, at a analytical academic level. It really isn't thinking like that. Like most academics are looking at the world and, and projecting outward. No one's really projecting inward to talk to the mayor, to talk to the state legislator, to talk to the county commissioner, because like they don't matter, right? We, we want to talk to Washington, D.C. We want to talk to uh, the Hill, Congress. Like, who, who, Okay, those guys is good. They got to know what's going on. But what about these local guys? They got to know what's going on because the world is much more smaller than we think. So we started this state-based national security program, and then David became uh, became our first state-based senior fellow, um, working on these issues, published several papers with us, and started to work on this. And we started to work a little bit from the Venezuela perspective, right? So tell us a little bit about the stuff that you've done, the papers that you've written, and, and how that's affected your understanding of what's going on here in Texas. The... the what is the, the phrase that we like to use, we're localizing national security. And, you know, you and I had talked about that early on where we saw there was a big gap between what's discussed in D.C. and the actual impact of national security locally. And I, th there was not only an informational gap, but there was an experience gap because a lot of locals didn't understand that the, let's say, the gang member who works on the corner selling drugs, that drug came from a national or a transnational criminal organization somewhere yeah. for the most part. Uh, at least nowadays, that's the case. And that understanding wasn't there. It was, it was separate. There was this problem, and then there was the, the things that are handled in D.C., these, these cross-border issues. And what our papers have been designed to do is say, for instance, we wrote a paper on AMLO, the president of, of Mexico, and, and the consequences of his policy and his relationships with Cuba and Venezuela and how that affects a local businessman mm. and Interestingly enough, and this is after we've published a few of those papers, is I end up talking to a few people that run utility companies locally, and they start expressing their frustration with AMLO mm. and his administration and how hard it is to sell. Because they didn't have seen it in the beginning, right? Right. They, the people they didn't know AMLO was part of a network. They didn't know the history. They didn't became the president of Mexico, and it's important if you're a you know businessman here in in, in Texas to, to do good business. I mean, people may not see this, but Texas in Mexico trade, not, not U.S. Mexico trade is the number one trade partner in, in the world, but Texas and Mexico trade is equivalent to like international trade because right. the amount of in, uh, commerce that moves both ways is huge. So if you're part of that commercial train, you're like, I want to have good relations with the business, with the president of Mexico. That's a good thing for my business. Yes. Okay, that's true, but you need to also know uh, for due diligence purposes who that president is, where he, how he rose to power, and what are the tentacles of the networks that they're developing? And I think that's where our papers try to focus on. 
And you try to give it that really local perspective to say, listen, guys, I said, this matters here in Texas uh, to your businessmen. Yeah. And and those in uh, going back to Venezuela, Venezuela is very, very similar in that where people see Venezuela as that problem somewhere. It's not, it doesn't matter. The consequences of Venezuela to many people don't manifest locally until you start talking about migration until you start talking about drugs, weaponizing cocaine. And then people start to see, Oh, well, yes, my, brother was arrested for cocaine distribution or yeah, I have a friend who's addicted to, to drugs and they, they, uh, and you begin to see that uh, drugs could be used as a weapon to destabilize us communities. And when you start saying that Venezuela becomes much more important to a local person when they can see the consequences of what they're attempting to do. And of course, a lot of us still think back uh, several years ago, that we still have an old school way of thinking in that, National security stays national, local security stays no local, and they don't really blend. That's no longer the case. The networks permeate from the top down. And in fact, I would argue that national threats are more important on a local level because national level actors and transnational actors can get more bang for their buck on a local level. And yeah. I give you like cyber. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see a lot, a lot of local police departments getting hacked by nation states or, or criminalized states. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can ask, why, what is that? And you go, well, why hack, hack DHS mm-hmm. when you can hack a local government mm-hmm. who has inroads into it's DHS? plugged into DHS's network, yeah. And they don't, they don't have the sophistication. Mm-hmm. They don't have the money to combat a state actor. So locals become even more target. The, uh, and they're vulnerable. Yes. They're vulnerable because they, they're not have the federal assets uh, that, you know, the federal government has. So they're not considered to be critical uh, in terms of infrastructure, well, but think, they're plugged in. Well, think about this, Eric uh, Swalwell, the Congressman out of, uh, out of California, California, who was given that defensive brief by the FBI saying, Hey, your girlfriend is a Chinese spy. Mm-hmm. What went under reported was the fact that she was also sleeping with mayors in yeah. two local towns. And the first question going back to your, it's not bad information. It's bad questions. My question was, Oh, I know exactly why they were going after him. Why are they going after these two guys? What's in their community that would make them of interest to the Chinese? Mm-hmm. And those are the kind of questions. And that that's where I, I use that example a lot to illustrate the fact that a lot of nation states are, they know they can get further in a local community because there's so many important assets in a local community that would have a similar, if not more important impact on the United States than trying to do something in DC. Correct. No, I think, I think it's very important. And, and so tell us a little bit about that because in the, you're now in a local capacity, you know, working uh, in Tarrant County, right? But you're, you're looking at threats that are probably transnational. They're obviously definitely here local, but tell us about it because Texas, you know, obviously Texas is a big state uh, and Texas, I think, I would say maybe most folks, when they think about the threats in Texas, they think about drug cartels. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mexican drug cartels are some of the biggest and most powerful in the world. Uh, but I think through the research that we've done, we've started to say, okay, the Mexican drug cartels are powerful, but there's actually nation state actors that are working w- with and and through them for a strategic objective. So tell, tell us a little bit how that really manifests itself here in Texas that's relevant for the folks here that live in this great, the Lone Star State. Yeah, it, it, the connection to the cartels and a nation state, let's use Venezuela as an example. We know the Jalisco cartel, which is 
uh, arguably the most powerful. They've probably surpassed Sinaloa, at least in Texas. Sinaloa has never had a, a they've had a presence here, but not like Southern California where they, they own Southern California. Jalisco has made inroads into Texas that Sinaloa, okay. at least into North Texas DFW, yeah. the Sinaloa has never had. And, uh, and we know that Jalisco is building in roads or at least if not already hand in glove with the Maduro regime in Venezuela. Yeah. And there's a quick little point on that. It's like, so I was told this cause I was on the Colombia Venezuela border and Jalisco, uh, the Mexican cartel operates on the Venezuelan side of that border. Right. And the Northern part, uh, in, in the Colombia part is called North Santander and the Venezuela part. Uh, I can't remember the the state would it be uh, Tachito or or right. Anyways, it's one of the states in the north part of Venezuela. Nonetheless, uh, I was told this by a Colombian uh, military intelligence officer. He said one out of every three kilos that's consumed in the world comes from that part border, from that right there. And if you're Jalisco, right, you that's where I'm going. <laughs> you're like that's and you're in the business of cocaine trafficking. You're like. It makes sense, right? It's not a, it's not a stretch. It's not what they would call an analytical leap to understand that Jalisco is going to go to the source because that's very profitable for them. And I remember I was actually, I, I got the call. I was having this conversation while I was at the border and I called you mm-hmm. and I was like, literally, I mean, he's like, Joseph, where are you at? I was like, I'm getting a connection. I was like, I'm in the Columbia, Venezuela. It's like, this must be important because you're asking me <laughs> like, what's going on? I was like, I, like, did you, do you know the Jalisco's in Venezuela? And I was like, because you, you, we've talked and you always told me the Jalisco's powerful here in Texas. And then uh, when I told you that you're like, well, we do know that the cocaine's getting a lot better yes. here in Texas, higher grade, higher quality. And that makes, you know, that's a sign that the Colombian um, Venezuela border location is a source of a lot of that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah there's, there's a lot of connections, but, but that's probably the best example of demonstrating how the, the criminalized or nation state like Venezuela has a direct impact on, on the, corners of Dallas on the street corners of Fort Worth because the the cocaine that they're moving is showing up here mm. people are taking it here the fentanyl that's coming across the border and that's being uh, laced with other drugs I mean the the overdoses right now uh, are catastrophic the numbers yeah and those are directly tied to cartels who are being supported by criminalized states is Jalisco in the fentanyl business or is it cocaine? I think everyone, every cartel is to a degree. Uh, and yes, Jalisco is. Uh, but what we've seen is that at least on a local level, in the regional, there's kind of a buffet of, of narcotics. Okay. It's, it's you, you, the, the guy that used to be the heroin guy. Yeah. Now he's the cocaine, the heroin, the marijuana. Oh, wow. They'll, they'll dabble in everything. With fentanyl, it used to be there was one or two people that knew where to get it. And it was dangerous. They knew how to use it. They knew how to uh, sprinkle it. They knew how to do all those things. Now there's so much powdered fentanyl that uh, anyone gets their hand on it. And there they are. uh, There's really, there's no, as we say, there's no quality assurance. There's no, there's no analysis to make sure the proper amounts are in there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Cause you have so many people with access to fentanyl and now they have, uh, they also have uh, counterfeit pills Mm. and, uh, and those are, Oh, those pressed. are deadly. Yeah. Those are pressed and yeah. and um in ways that no one can know how much uh, fentanyl is in there. So, like when you say press, is like they're they're pressing the pill with uh the lacing the fentanyl with something and pressing it. Yes. Okay. So with a pill press. Yeah. Yeah. That, that those things are deadly because I mean I don't you probably know the numbers right? how much, how much fentanyl can kill how many. 
population. Yeah, uh, I, the exact amount. Um, we talked es- about it in one of our podcasts. Me. Yes, yeah. but it's but a, a, a small pill. Generally, they have to cut it in quarters, sometimes eighths, mm-hmm. because a quarter could kill you. Wow! So that's how small they're cutting one pill. Wow. And you can only imagine one of the one of the consequences, which uh, Derek uh, yeah. Maltz, uh, Maltz yeah. has talked about extensively. And he's right. He's exactly right in that um, it's not a bunch of drug dealers who have just gone too far and, and their body just shut down because they were taking drugs too much. These are kids that someone in school has said, uh, you know, hey, you need a pill. I have a pill. Not knowing it's counterfeit. It's it's. Uh, the deaths, the overdoses that are coming are not routine drug users. Mm. They're very, a lot of them are just experimenting. Wow. And that's what's dangerous. Yeah, because we talked about it in, in that podcast, which for those that want to watch, it's called Weaponized Drug Trafficking. It was actually the first podcast that we put out earlier this year. And we talked about it with Derek Maltz, who's a former uh, special agent in the Drug Enforcement Administration. He's actually the head of Special Operations Division down in Virginia. And and David was with us as well, and then we had also uh, Sergio de la Pena. So we had this kind of big perspective. And I remember what I, you know, among many things that we took away from that conversation was, and Derek made sure to emphasize this: is this is not just like a gateway drug anymore. It's not like you take fentanyl, you take these pills, and you're like, okay, now you get addicted because they call it addictions. He's like, you took it once, and you're, you're saying, you know, a quarter can kill you. So you know, a whole yeah. pill, you're out, you're done. And, you know, uh, it could be a mistake, right? You got in the wrong party, you're with the wrong people, you're with the wrong crowd. And, you know, you're supposed to learn from that. Like, all the, you know, every, you know, teens do what teens do, and they right. take some drugs, experiment with some stuff. You learn from that. You grow, you evolve, you, your life uh, you, you, you goes on. But in this case, uh, it doesn't. And, and a lot of kids are dying because they don't know better, and, 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 the, and it's not meant to be that way. Uh, he went, you know, really hard to say, like, this is actually poisoning. Uh, Americans, and I think I think he's right. Uh, David's book, Consequence and Intelligence Officers War. This is uh, David. I really think this is a good book. I think we want to make sure we market the book because it it tells a story that I think many people just haven't heard before. Especially, I would say for those that are interested in the intelligence community from a different perspective, right? Like we hear intelligence community, obviously you know the CIA, the FBI. That's on the civilian side, on the military side. You might have heard of NCIS. They have a you know I think a TV show about it or yeah, something like that. That's why I tell people we're 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 just like NCIS. We just don't have our own TV show. <laughs> but nonetheless, I think it's it's an excellent book. You got to pick it up. It's available on Amazon. We also got a paper that we uh, just published about with David at the Trans Regional Threats Journal. So this is a journal that we're using to basically broadcast a lot of this. How these uh, big threats, uh, global threats, transnational threats are manifesting himself inside the United States and in the neighborhood in Latin America in ways that uh, I think many analysts aren't doing. So, David, it was excellent to talk to you. It's excellent to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, we're definitely, David's going to be a regular on the podcast. We'll see him uh, We see him today in Dallas, but we'll see him tomorrow in D.C. and, and maybe even Latin America. we got to get you down there. Absolutely. I would love to. We've got to hurry up because there's it's countries. Getting it's getting bad down there. There's <laughs> countries we can't go. Like, you know, obviously I was going to uh, Colombia a lot in the last few years. Um, and they have a new president and, and, uh, I'm not entirely sure how that country is going to be, uh, with the United States. I'm sure the United States government uh, is going to want to maintain strong relations with the, the country. And I think that happens in every type of transition, but when you often get disappointed at some point, they try to cut that relationship off. We need, we need to strengthen what remains. Let's go to, uh, let's go to my Dominicans. 
They are a U.S. partner. They, they got a friendly U.S. government. We, Let's we, start we, there, Santo Domingo. And there are threats. There are yes. threats uh, that are manifesting some in the Dominican Republic. <laughs> Thanks again, David. We'll, th- we'll talk next time. And for those of you, again, this is the Border Wars Podcast. If you haven't subscribed to our YouTube channel, uh, to our Spotify, uh, like this video, uh, be sure to do so. And we'll see you at our next uh, episode. Until next time. Subscribe to the Border Wars Podcast and visit our website at securefreesociety.org. See you in the next episode.